afternoon, and welcome to Ask the Expert, presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD. My name is Karen Sampson-Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Academic Evaluations, What Parents Need to Know. Today we are hosting Missy Alexander, a parent educator with Parents Place in Maryland, a National Parent Technical Assistance Center. Today's webcast is part of our Ask the Expert webcast series, which gives our community access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals in the many fields of ADHD research and experience. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. If you'd like to talk with a health information specialist for further information on today's topic, please contact us Monday through Friday from 1 to 5 p.m. at 1-800-233-4050 Eastern Time or online at help4adhd.org slash nrc. It is a privilege to introduce today's guest, Missy Alexander. Ms. Alexander is a parent educator for the Parents Place of Maryland, a national parent technical assistance center. She leads workshops on a variety of topics and has been a guest lecturer at Towson University, Johns Hopkins University, and the College of Southern Maryland. Ms. Alexander is on the board of directors for the Learning Disability Association of Maryland. She is an active member and former chairperson of the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. Once more, we are very pleased to welcome this afternoon's guest. Ms. Alexander, if you'd like to begin. Yes, I would. Thank you all very much for inviting me to talk to you guys today about a really important topic, evaluations and what parents need to know. Part C of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act requires each state have at least one parent training and information center to assist families in special education matters. We were founded in 1990, and I like to say we're by parents for parents. And we offer a variety of services. And to find your PTI in your state, I've included a link to the parentcenterhub.org. Um, note that some states have more than one parent training and information center. So it might be by geographic region. So just kind of keeping a heads up with that. In our webinar today, we're going to discuss the process for determining a child's special ed needs additional considerations for evaluations, especially with a view towards children with ADHD or who are suspected of having ADHD. We're going to have a brief comparison of Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1974, as well as the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act idea, and what parents that you have, what rights you have as a parent under IDEA. So first of all, let's define what we're talking about. An evaluation means procedures. So an evaluation is the procedures of assessments. It's not the, the assessments themselves. And they're designed, they're, they're used in accordance with sections of the Code of Federal Regulations to determine whether a child has a disability and the nature and extent of the special education and related services that the child might need. Now, on the slides where applicable, I included the reference to 34 CFR. That is the federal regulation that implements the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So if you want to read more about this specifically, you can go to the links that I've provided. And if you want to re download the regulations themselves, it begins at 34 CFR 300. 
So in a nutshell, an evaluation is determined is to determine if your child is a child with a disability under the criteria set forth in IDEA and to determine the educational needs of the student. It's also to understand a child's strengths. Typically, when we have meetings, IEP meetings, 504 meetings, student service team meetings, whatever they're called, we're talking about things the child can't do or difficulties that they're having. But evaluations are also supposed to identify strengths, which is kind of refreshing to talk about what they can do. And it's also um, to give us information to help us with educational decision-making process so that we're making informed decisions as parents. So what needs to be included in an evaluation? And I think this is really important for families to understand that the child is to be assessed in all related areas to the suspected disability. Then you'll notice after that is the word including. So in, when you're reading um, case law or regulations, when you see the word including, it's usually preceding a list. And the list is an example list. It's not an exhaustive list. So here the list is, if appropriate, health, vision, hearing, social, emotional status, general intelligence, academic performance, communicative status, and motor abilities. But those, they're, they're allowed to evaluate in more areas, but this is just an idea. And it emphasizes that it's to be in all areas related to the child's disability. And for children, who with ADHD or who are suspected of having ADHD, I feel like this reference is especially important, that the evaluation is sufficiently comprehensive to identify all of the child's special education-related services needs, whether or not commonly linked to the disability category in which the child has been classified. That is very important because of the comorbidity associated with ADHD. I believe it's from 2011 from the American Academy of Pediatrics on comorbid, the prevalence of comorbid disorders for children with ADHD. And comorbid, comorbid means happening at the same time for layman's purposes. So the training that I've had, I've heard Larry Silver speak, Rick Lavoie, Chris Dendy, who references Russell Barkley quite often, the likelihood of a child with ADHD having a learning disability is about 50%. Same thing with a child with a learning disability having ADHD. It's a 50%. And the AAP says 46.1%, so that's close enough. You're also looking at children with ADHD. These are the top five comorbid disorders, a conduct disorder, anxiety and depression, and speech problems. So when you go back, and talk about developing an assessment plan, you want to consider, do any of these comorbid areas sound like it fits your child? And if so, you want to have those areas evaluated as well. You don't want to limit yourself to only looking at ADHD. Now, what is an appropriate evaluation? This is dictated by federal law on what should be included in an evaluation. First of all, it needs to be a variety of tools and strategies. It's not just one test and it's a yes or no answer. That it does not discriminate, and I live in Southern Maryland and it's a pretty rural area. So I use this example. Um, we, except in a very few pockets 
of our county, we don't have crosswalks, we don't have street signs and the pedestrian signs. So if you were having an evaluation for a child here in the rural part of Maryland or rural part of anywhere, and you are measuring their vocabulary and you're asking them to identify walk and don't walk signs, if they've never seen them, they're gonna score, um, they're gonna get a zero for that response and it's not gonna be a valid representation of what they know. So, so that it doesn't discriminate. It also needs to take into account the child's um, culture, their, their family arrangements, and, and everything in, that's child-centered. It also must be administered in the child's native language or mode of communication that is likely to yield what a child knows and, and what they can do. So if you have a child with a language impairment, if you're gonna give evaluations that are language heavy, they're likely not going to yield what a child can and cannot do because of the language impairment. They also need to use technically sound instruments. I've known of a few reading specialists and math specialists who've developed some really great um, informal tests to measure just, you know, probes just where a child um, has difficulty learning. But those don't qualify under this evaluation umbrella because they're not technically sound. They've not been um, normed and um, researched. The assessments are used for the purposes that they were intended to so that they're valid and reliable. Um, if it's a time test, it must be timed. Um, if the test says I can only repeat the question twice, then they can only repeat it twice. So that you want to make sure that it's given according to the publisher's instructions so that the results are reliable and is administered by trained professionals and in accordance with the instructions provided by the producer or the publisher of the assessment. So you wanna make sure that it's not just an informal test and we know IDEA also says that a screening is not an evaluation for our purposes here when we talk about evaluation. So what questions can you ask at the beginning of the evaluation process? You can ask what assessments will be used. Um, most evaluators are hesitant to tell you which tool they're going to use because they want to have the latitude of being able to have a variety of tools um, available to evaluate a child. And an example of that would be um, a standardized academic eval that's used pretty much around the nation is the Woodcock-Johnson test of achievement. But let's say a student is having some scattered scores in the calculation subtest. Um, an evaluator might want to go to something like the key math evaluation to do a deeper probe in the area of math. So that's why they're hesitant to tell you what assessments will be used because they want to have the latitude of being able to call in other things as they deem necessary. Now, when you are reviewing the evaluation, you want to read the entire thing. And you want to be able to reflect, is this accurate about my child? Before the test is given, asking if the test will be in your child's first language, if your child's mode of communication is in English. Um, and you also want to ask if you can see the test results. That can be a sticking point. However, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act provides that families have the right 
to inspect and review all educational records. And testing protocols that are used by evaluators fall into the realm of educational records once a child's personally identifiable information is on there. You're not asking for a copy of it, you're asking to see it. I find this helpful when a evaluator is talking about um, block design, for example, and they say I have multicolor blocks and I want them to cre recreate a design. Sometimes it's helpful for families to see it. Or if you um, have a child who's taking an assessment, and some assessments, once you get an answer, once you get three consecutive problems wrong, you stop. Well, some children, they might get two wrong, and then the third one get right. They might get a couple more right, then get wrong. Sometimes it's helpful for families to better understand how their child learns by seeing that test protocol. So you can absolutely ask to see it and ask that the evaluator bring it with them when you meet to discuss the results of the evaluation. But it's also important to note that evaluations may not discriminate against your child, their culture, their disability, their race, or any other area. So when you review the test results, you, you want to say, does this, is this my child? Can my child do this? Or, wait a minute, this is saying my kid has an, a problem in this area, but I know that they can do it. So you want to look for that. You want to see, is that a good fit about what you know about your child? If you don't feel it's a good fit, you need to say so and you need to do it in writing. And for those of us that are Pete Wright fans, we know if it's not in writing, it wasn't said. And if it's not in writing, it wasn't done. So you need to put your concerns in writing. When you meet to discuss the evaluations, you're going to want to talk about your concerns about what you're seeing. One of the resolutions for when you may not agree with the results of the test is more testing can be done. Um, it can, they can drill down deeper into an academic area or an executive functioning area or a coping strategy area to see if more information can be gleaned. And then we're going to talk about this in a few minutes. You also have the parental right to an independent educational evaluation at public expense. And if you have a child who's already receiving special education, I hope that you've read your procedural safeguards document. If you haven't, I encourage you to read it a couple of times. The first time, it might not be so easy to understand, but as if you read it a couple of times, it'll start becoming familiar to you, and you will see in there that you have the right to an independent educational evaluation. So what do you need to know about timelines for evaluations? So we're kind of backing up just a little bit about um, an initial evaluation. You'll need to refer to your state regulations regarding re-evaluations. But for initial evaluations, the federal law requires that school systems have the evaluations completed and review them with the parent within 60 days, and it's calendar days, not school days, not business days, from the date that they receive the parent's consent. And when we talk about consent, families need to understand that schools may not evaluate a child until they have the parent's informed written consent. Now, the IDEA 2004 amendments allow school systems 
to take families to a due process hearing if families say, no, you may not evaluate my child. And they can pursue the hearing for the evaluation only. If a family chooses to decline special education related services, then the school system may not pursue um, court action to force a family to accept special education. So what do you need to know about eligibility? Let's say you've, you've sat down, you feel like the assessments are valid and that they are an accurate representation of your child's ability. You will do so at an IEP meeting. And that's where parents, it's meeting with parents and school staff where you'll review the evaluation. And then if you agree that the child qualifies, then the team will write an IEP. You must be invited to help with all of your child's IEP meetings, all of them. The federal law is very, very clear on the length of steps that school systems must exhaust before they can hold a meeting without a parent. If schools approach you and seem friendly enough and say, you know, if you can't make it, we, you, we can meet without you and we'll just let you know what happens afterwards, you wouldn't do that with a medical appointment. Don't do it with a school appointment. You want to be there. You're the constant person in your child's life, and you're there to represent them in their best interests. So what if, you, what if at the IEP meeting, you, they, the school-based members of the team feel that your child doesn't agree, doesn't qualify for special education? What are you going to do? First, you're going to show that you disagree, and you're going to do it in writing. And then you're going to ask them what steps you can take. If they immediately say you can take us to court, typically that means you're with an IEP facilitator or chairperson that doesn't quite understand or appreciate the levels available to families to resolve dispute resolution, to resolve disputes. Um, I would contact the Office of the Director of Special Education for your local education agency to discuss it, or I would contact the state education agency and just explain that you have a disagreement and you don't think it necessarily needs to go to a hearing, but you'd like to have, um, have available to you alternative dispute resolution steps. And then whatever steps they have, you can follow through with them. Now, about independent educational evaluation at public expense. Again, if you read your procedural safeguards document, it should be in there. And it just says, if you disagree with the testing done by the school system, you have the right to a private eval to be paid for by the school system. And the school system can do one of two things. They can say okay, or they can initiate a hearing to justify their evaluation. So to request a school evaluation for an initial evaluation, the federal law says that either a parent of a child or a public agency, and in this case it's a school system, can initiate a request for an initial eval to determine eligibility. That's what the federal law says. Either one can do it. And why do we tell parents to do it in writing? Let's use, we're going to use a hypothetical situation. Let's say you've requested an evaluation on October 1st. They meet with you, they have 30 days to convene the meeting, which is November 1st. Let's say November 1st, you give permission. Then you're, they have 60 days to meet with you, which puts you at January 1st. 
if on January 1st everyone agrees your child needs an IEP, they have 30 days to draft the IEP, which puts you at February 1st, and the second semester of the school year begins approximately the third week in January, so half the school year has gone by. If you didn't put it in writing, it further delays that process. So we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between a 504 and an IEP. A 504 gains access. An IEP means academic progress. So in layman's terms, a 504 plan gets a student access into the public library. But it doesn't guarantee that they can read the books there. An IEP gets them in the library and helps them learn how to read. So when we talk about 504 plans, here is a side-by-side -side comparison of them. Two things I'd like to point out to you. Section 504 does have a provision for evaluations, although I'm not familiar with any local education agency that is doing evaluations for Section 504. And also I want to point out to you the second thing, which is enforcement. For IDEA, for special education matters, the state education agency is the enforcement arm for that. But for 504 plans, the enforcement arm is the Office of Civil Rights. And you can go to the OCR website to find out which field office has jurisdiction over the state in which you live. So we have a few negotiating tips, two tips for families for negotiating the system. Keep a notebook and keep a calendar and write things down in real time. You don't want to sit down on Friday with a cup of tea and say, okay, what happened Monday morning? You want to have it in real time. Keep copies of everything. We encourage families to keep a clean copy of everything. So when you get an evaluation report, make a copy of it and write on your copy, but you want to have a clean copy. Get the names of the people you speak with. If you are calling to talk with someone in particular and you leave a message, find out who it is you're leaving the message with because sometimes you'll need to go back to that person that took the message to try to reach the person you're actually wanting to talk to. Um, you want to follow the chain of command for a variety of reasons. If you don't follow the chain of command and think, I'm going to just take this to the superintendent, you are going to frustrate yourself because the superintendent won't even consider it and he'll punt it right back to the department where it should have been taken to originally. It also shows that you are reasonable and you are attempting to resolve the issue so that the higher up it gets in the hierarchy of the school system, the more likely it'll get immediate attention. Also get a commitment and a time frame. An example of that would be, let's say we're going to try a pencil grip for a student who is having a hard time with handwriting. Who's going to provide the grip? When are they going to do it? And how long are we going to try it to see if it works? You want those particulars. Also request written information. If the school system says, well, the county says we're not allowed to do that, ask them, where can I find more information about that that's holding us back? Or if they say, you know, the state won't let us do this, ask where you can find that information so you can read it yourself. I find it also helpful to get written information about the curriculum. You'd be amazed reading the curriculum, how social skills is embedded throughout the curriculum from kindergarten through 12th grade, 
And I, we often find that school systems say social skills aren't our problem, but it's embedded into your curriculum, so it kind of is your problem to deal with. A helpful document for families is the Frequently Asked Questions document about 504 from the U.S. Department of Education and the Office of Civil Rights. So it's not just the parents saying, I think you need to do this, it's what the feds are saying that that needs to be done. It also is, helps you um, perhaps resolve some disagreements early on or know if there is truly a disagreement to be had. More quick tips for parents. We encourage families to be persistent and be assertive. That does not mean to be aggressive, but it means you want to know well, who's going to do what and when and how long are we going to try it. If a school says, well, the state won't let us do this, or we're not sure this is a state mandate, say, maybe we should call the Maryland State Department of Education and get their input on it. Don't hesitate to say, let's call somebody that maybe is higher up to get our, our questions answered, because that's what you're doing. You wouldn't want to do it in a threatening way, but it's truly in a collaborative way to get your question answered. Being polite and keeping your cool goes hand in hand. You know, as um, Pete and Pam Wright say, education is like a marriage without the possibility of divorce. Unless you can afford to send your child to a non-public non placement. So your reputation will precede you, so you always want to be polite and keep your cool so that that reputation will follow you as your child goes through school. Do your homework. If your child is in a reading intervention, research it. One of the things I go by is I don't ask a question that I don't already know the answer to unless I truly need the person I'm asking to give me the information. So if your child's in a reading intervention, contact the publisher to find out how often it should be given, by whom, um, the frequency and duration of each session. Another resource for reading is the Florida Center for Reading Research. You want to know more about it yourself so you can ask about it. Also, networking and talking with other parents is really helpful. I frequently tell parents, the wheel's been created. We just need to find it and hop on. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to network with families and talk to other parents. One way to do it, I know in Maryland, we have um, special education citizen advisory committees in each of our LEAs. And I know nationwide there are special ed PTAs. There's also disability-specific um, support groups, and we encourage families to, to go out and find information. It's very powerful to bring information to school as opposed to sitting there and always receiving information. So finally, just a little bit about meeting etiquette. Be clear on the purpose of the meeting before it occurs. Usually, they'll state the purpose of the meeting at, as it begins. But if they don't, you state it, why we're here, why this meeting was convened. But during the meeting, listen carefully and take notes. We encourage families um, to use two different colors of ink, the regular color, whatever you happen to grab, but also a red pen. And I write in red ink questions that weren't answered or answers that were received, or action items. And then at the end of the meeting, I go back and review the things that I've written in red. If it's a question that was unanswered, I'll pose it again. If it was a 
answer that was provided, I'll restate it. If it's an action item, I'll restate it. It helps everybody and it ties in with the last bulleted point about asking that decisions and recommendations be restated. And another thing that we encourage families to do is ask questions about anything you don't understand until you understand. If they tell you five times an explanation and you still don't understand, then you ask them a sixth time. And lastly, if you ask for an IEP meeting and it's because you're concerned about progress, about implementation, what have you, and the meeting starts and the IEP chairperson says, okay, we're gonna start with progress. It's okay if you say, I would like to hear progress, but I asked for this IEP meeting specifically to discuss whatever it is, and you can say, and if after we've discussed this, you want to talk about, if we have time to talk about progress, I'm happy to hear it. So that's the essentials of Section 504 plans and IEPs and evaluations. And if you have any questions and you're here in Maryland, don't hesitate to contact us. And like I said earlier, if you're not in Maryland, there are parent training and information centers in every state. So feel free to reach out because that's what we do. Karen, I give it back to you. All right, well, I'm happy to take it back. And for our participants, we are ready for your questions. We have some questions that have come in while Michelle and Sanders been talking. And uh, if you have, so go ahead, put them into those question box now. And we have one question from a participant who was just looking for a little clarification. She was wondering, she said she's a bit confused between the difference between the evaluation the school is doing and the evaluation that was done for her child in the psychiatrist's office. And she was wondering if one can be substituted for the other. And this is something we hear at the National Resource Center. So a psychiatric evaluation could be projective to see if an emotional disturbance is present, or it could be a neuropsychological evaluation. And sort of in a layman's terms, the difference between a school psychological and a neuropsych is a school psychological eval will identify strengths and weaknesses, but a neuropsych will tell you why they're there. And if school is evaluating your child, you want to have, um, you want to be able to share with your private clinician the tools school plans to use and vice versa, because the publishers of the tools say they can't be given within certain um, timelines of the first administration. I believe psychological, it's a year, and academic, it's six months because of test practice. Great, thank you. I think that's a clarification that helps a lot of our participants. Well, our next question now is coming from Sonia, and she wants to know, what is the best way for a parent to prepare for a meeting to review the draft for the IEP agreement, I'm sorry, the IEP or the 504 agreement? And she's also wondering if parents should bring in outside evaluations to these meetings. Okay, so to prepare, I encourage families to read every word on every page of every report at least twice, preferably three times. The first time it's gonna seem like, okay, I'm just reading this stuff. The second time it's gonna start to click and the third time you're gonna start to really see, okay, do you agree with this? Is this my child? Is it not my child? And if you have questions, 
and you develop a list of your questions, send them ahead of time so that the school team can be prepared to discuss them with you. And what was the second part of the question? I'm sorry, I forgot. That's all right. A lot of times parents will have um, outside evaluations done, either medical ones or additional education ones. And she was wondering if that was something, if those results were something she should bring into these meetings. If you, that, that depends on your comfort level. If you have a private evaluation um, and you're comfortable sharing that information with the school team, you can. Sometimes private evaluations might include family history information that has no relevancy to the child's education. So you can redact that information. I definitely tell families, if you redact any information that has nothing, no impact on the education, to make it obvious that you redacted it. I once had a parent try to cut and paste and it was obvious and it was just a horrible, horrible outcome. Um, so it's up to you whether you want to share them or not. And what I encourage families to do is read the reports really thoroughly and then decide, do you agree with the private recommendations or not? And it's okay to sometimes not agree. You know, if they say your child would be a candidate for private school, but you feel strongly that, you know, you want your child to remain in public school, you can identify which of the recommendations that you're asking for and that, you know, you concur with. And when you present, if you choose to present the private evaluation to the school system, the school system is obligated to review and consider information that you bring. So they can check the box they reviewed and consider and move on. What families need to do is say, I'm asking for these recommendations. That then slides it from the burden of review and consider and puts it under the harsher burden of it's a parent request and they have to answer it. Thank you. I think that's very helpful. Well, our next question is uh, coming from Victoria, and she was wondering if a parent makes a request for an evaluation, can the school deny the request? And also, I'd like to add, we had a couple people asking about your slides, Ms. Alexander, and those slides are available right now underneath the resources tab underneath your questions bar. So Victoria's question again was, can a school deny a request for an evaluation? They can. Um, they can, but I don't take no for an answer when it comes to this, especially if it's warranted. So I would be, that's one area where I would persevere and go up the chain of command. All right, and going up that chain of command is something that you did mention earlier. Um, well, our next question, oh, go ahead, please. Oh, no, no, I, I was agreeing with you. <laughs> All right. Well, our next question is coming from Grace, and she's wondering if students' grades are part of, uh, are taken into consideration when determining a child's eligibility for an IEP or a 504. For a 504 plan, the child has to be known to have a disability or regarded as having a disability. However, IDEA clearly states that a, that a school system is to provide the free and appropriate public education to a child regardless 
of whether they are passing from grade to grade and haven't failed. And you could find that in the evaluations and reevaluation section of IDEA in section 300.301, and I was trying to flip through. It's in section 300.301. It very clearly states it. Great, I think that's helpful. Well, our next question now is from Kim, and she was wondering, can a school psychologist diagnose ADHD? And if this um, educator can't, shouldn't they tell a parent that they cannot diagnose ADHD, but what their role is in the evaluation? Well, I've, they cannot, they don't have the licensing credentials, to my understanding, to my knowledge, to diagnose anyone. But with their proper training, they can say that the child meets the criteria of a child with a specific disability, yes. But you would want to look for outside medical diagnosis for confirmation. Great, thank you. That's a question we do receive um, at the National Resource Center. And again, school professionals, school personnel, they're not in a position to do the medical evaluation or make a diagnosis, so that helps. Well, our next question is coming from a parent who was wondering what happens if parents don't agree with one another about the results of the evaluation Sometimes um, in families where parents are co-parenting and are no longer married, there are some disagreements. So what happens in that situation? That's a really good question, and that's one that is a, it's spimies, advocates, and attorneys um, around the nation. And if, if that were the situation, from my perspective, I would um, refer the parent back to their um, domestic law attorney to talk about educational decision-making rights. Perhaps maybe mediation might help. Um, that's, that, that's stymies us around the nation all the time. All right. Well, our next question now is coming and um, she, we have a question from Sandra, and she has a student who has a, an IEP and the school would like to move it to a 504 plan, and she was wondering, is that possible? Can the school make that change without her consent? No. If you're looking, if a school is looking to dismiss a student from an IEP, they have to evaluate. Sort of the layman's understanding to remember is you have to test in to get an IEP. You have to test out to have it removed. So just because a child might meet their goals and objectives, they need to be evaluated before services can be discontinued. Because when you discontinue, ser when you discontinue services, it's considered a change in placement. And IDEA says that any time a change in placement is considered, evals must occur with the exception of high school graduation. If the child is graduating with a diploma, or it might be a certificate of program completion as well, um, then they wouldn't evaluate. Great. Well, our question now is from Valerie, and she was asking, can, can you have an IEP meeting based only on the outside educational evaluation without a school evaluation? So 
parent who's had an outside psychoed, um, psych, excuse me, an outside educational evaluation, and is that sufficient for the school to go forward with an IEP or a 504? Maybe for a 504, but not for an IEP, because the county in, in Maryland, our local education agencies are counties. So the LEA has to justify to the State Education Association um, why they're delivering special education to a student. And it can't be based on outside evaluations. So it's sort of a prove to themselves that there's a need. They can't, there's nothing to prevent them from accepting the outside assessment and findings and recommendations, but they're careful with that because some school is provided under IDEA to provide a child with a free and appropriate public education. And if they do education planning based solely on an independent eval that the family has secured, and they write an IEP based solely on that data, the parents could ask for reimbursement. So it's sort of two-pronged. They'll evaluate themselves because the state could come in and do an audit, so they need to show that they've done their due diligence. And also, too, um, they don't want to step into the gray area of faith and reimbursing the parent. All right, thank you. I think that's a, a good answer. We have a lot of parents who do ask us that question. Well, our next question is from Paul, and he was wondering, what should a parent do if a 504 plan is in place with accommodations, but parents looking at things and don't think those accommodations are being followed? Well, you'd want to ask, I, I kind of go in with a positive and say, show me how this is being done. Because from what I'm seeing, and then I'll, I'll give my justification why I'm concerned that it's not being done. And if there, there's, it's a two-prong. There's failure and then there's refusal. And I just had this conversation with a family this morning. Are schools failing to implement the plan or are they refusing to implement the plan? If they're failing, I would want to work collaboratively to help them meet the plan. If they're refusing, then you would have grounds to file a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights for Disability Discrimination. All right, thank you. Um, our next question now is from Sandra. And she was wondering what the difference between um, an intra, a, a periodical evaluation is versus a new evaluation. And is a periodic one less extensive than the, the new evaluation, perhaps the students moving from a 504 to an IEP? Well, under IDEA, under the special ed law, um, schools are required at minimum every three years, but no more frequently than every year to evaluate a child to determine if they continue to be eligible as a child with a disability who requires special education services. And it's been my experience that when a child is around seven, their cognitive skills are more crystallized than they were when they were younger. So you get a better 
snapshot of their cognitive ability. Then if you jump to three years after that, if they wanted to do another IQ test, they might, but then after that, that you wouldn't have an IQ test unless you thought there's three ways you'd want to have subsequent cognitive IQ tests. Um, if there's been a traumatic brain injury, if you suspect that the child has not benefited from their education, or because of the child's um, social emotional um, impact is so severe that it's affecting their cognitive ability. And other than cognitive, a reevaluation should be in all areas that the child was previously evaluated in. Oh, great. Well, Amy has a follow-up question for you. And she asks, once an IEP is already in place, is the first review in a year? Is it, does it take a year before it's reviewed? Or is it reviewed sooner? And what can a parent expect during that time? That's a good question. You, they have to review it annually, but you don't have to wait for an annual review. You don't have to have a formal IEP meeting either to talk about progress. You can have a parent-teacher conference with the gen ed teacher and the special ed teacher to talk about um, IEP implementation and progress and interventions. And when we talk about interventions, we're also talking about behavioral interventions as well as academic in interventions. Um, you should get a progress report at least as often as children um, in general education get report cards. So that you can review your child's progress there. So you can ask for meetings. You don't have to wait for the annual meeting. But I also caution parents, you don't necessarily have to have an IEP meeting to talk about progress. You could have it with the service providers, the gen ed, special ed, um, OT, speech path, whomever is working with your child, and see their data. That's what you want to see is you want to see their data. All right, thank you. Um, well, another parent is wondering if a parent, if a child is already on an IEP but is failing, should the uh, should the child qualify for additional resources? Additional, you know, going back based on that. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I, uh, the child isn't failing. The child has been denied an IEP. So the child's been denied an IEP but is failing. Is that grounds for the, for the parent to go back and say, look, we need to do the evaluation again. We need, we need an IEP. What, what can the parent do in this case? I'd want to know why the child's failing. Is it um, lack of response to educational approaches? Is it interfering behavior? I would want to know why the child is failing. And then I would want to have a conversation and have meaningful conversation with what supports need to be put in place to support the student. Um, just because you fail doesn't mean you get an IEP, no. Um, are they failing and it's a manifestation of their disability? That kind of kicks it up a notch. Um, if it's been at least, if the child has never been evaluated to determine eligibility, I would do it now. I put that request in now in writing. If they have been evaluated and it's been within a year, 
but we're still failing, um, then I'd want to have a meaningful conversation with the school team to find out why they're failing and what they're going to do to support this child's learning. The question really was from several parents who were wondering, um, is a note, a letter from a, a doctor uh, necessary stating that a child has ADHD or another diagnosis? Is it needed in order to get the ball rolling for an evaluation? Or can a parent start this before diagnosis? Or do they even have to disclose the diagnosis? The parent can start it before there's a diagnosis because remember, the academic team is going to say whether they, you know, they meet the criteria as a child with a disability. Outside medical diagnosis information is sometimes helpful um, in justifying evaluations, but as frustrating as it is, a doctor putting in a note, Johnny has ADHD and needs an IEP is not gonna get you anywhere. All right, thank you. Well, our next question comes from Paula, and she wants to know how can she get an IEP case manager to provide more concrete, practical evidence of actual progress? What, what uh, does she need to do to really see that this is working? Well, what I would do is I would talk with the case manager or the service provider and at, you know, it depends. Let's take this first academically. Um, I'd want to know what's being worked on and how often they do, sometimes they're called a probe, to see how much progress a child has made. How often are they measuring progress for the effectiveness of the intervention and put it, you would like a copy of that. You would like that concrete feedback. With behavioral, typically they gather data. So you can ask for the data um, weekly, every other week, whatever satisfies you. Um, a lot of times with children who have difficulty with language and they can't share about their day, like typically developing children, you want a good homeschool communication system set up so that the family can know what's going on. Because really, if the child lacks the language skills to be able to report on their day, to not give them homeschool communication could be viewed as being discriminatory because the child's peers can come home and report about their day. All right, so thank you. Our next question is from Susan, and she wants to know, if the IP is in place, does the teacher have the ability or the right to determine whether those accommodations are warranted, whether or not to follow through on specific accommodations? We hear a lot, I hear a lot about this in elementary and middle school especially, that sometimes a teacher will say, I'll do this, but not, but not that. Is this something a teacher can do? No. No, they cannot do that. If the 504 plan has been developed, it needs to be implemented. To choose not to is a refusal to implement it, and it is a refusal of the educational rights of a child with a disability. And what if the teacher argues back that I have for the other students? How can a parent respond to that? Um, 
listen to that and say, I will, and, and I would offer, I'll see what I can do to get you additional assistance in the classroom. And then I would advocate for that classroom to get more assistance. All right, thank you. I think that's very helpful. We have some uh, callers who are wondering what recommendations do you have on schools using seclusion as part of a safety plan when providers advise against it? Sometimes you have, we've heard of students who have ADHD or ADHD in a co-occurring who have been removed or placed in what's sometimes called a safe area. What are your thoughts on this? Seclusion is not a substitute for positive behavior interventions and supports. Um, I'm very much against them. If the, the federal law specifically says unless they're a danger to themselves or to others, obviously you want them to be safe. And you also want to think when they're in an emotional crisis, you want to preserve their dignity because sometimes after they calm down, they realize, oh my gosh, I just did that in front of my friends. But that should be in a crisis plan only, should never be part of standard operating procedure. And there's some really great work being done at the federal level on restraint and seclusion, and it's filtering down to some of the states. And the organization that I belong to, the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates, COPAA.org, has some great resources on um, overturning the use of restraint and seclusion with children. And I encourage families to reach out and learn about it and implement it. And, you, you know, you can contact us at COPA and we can give you technical assistance. We have our executive director, Denise Marshall, was, is, was at one time a behavior specialist. She really gets restraint and seclusion and can give you some really, really good guidance on um, replacing that with more effective interventions. Well, I have a follow-up question for you, and again, this is something we hear very frequently, that children with ADHD are being denied recess um, as a disciplinary or as a consequence. And what are your thoughts on that, and how can a parent approach that? Um, because it sounds like recess is a benefit. It's a, a fun thing, but research is showing that this is actually very helpful for children with ADHD. So what would you suggest to a parent whose child is being denied recess? Okay. That's one of my pet peeves. Um, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics says that we're raising fat kids and then schools take away their recess. So we can't win. I fight to never have recess withheld for a child, especially a child with ADHD. They need that gross motor, that heavy input. What I have done is written into plans 504 and IEP that recess will not be withheld for any reason, however, it can be teacher-directed activities. So, for example, going to, I see this in elementary school, sometimes middle school, go to the gym and help the PE teacher move the gymnastic mats. That's deep, heavy work. And that's very organizing and calming. Um, if they go outside for recess, walking laps with the teacher, so they're still getting in that gross motor, that proprioceptive input to help their bodies calm down. Um, and the, I have a lot of friends for teachers, and I'm not besmirching them, but the teacher feels like I'm not letting them get away with misbehaving. 
Well, what about, we've got a couple parents, what about adding recess to an IEP or 504? Maybe um, this is a school that doesn't have a regular recess period. Is that something that can be added into a, day's, a child's day specifically? Recess, um, I don't know. What I would, what you can build in to a child's day are gross motor breaks, um, where it accomplishes that organizing and heavy motor movement. Um, one thing I've seen done is um, using milk crates and taking books to the librarian. You know, I've seen some really good schools do creative things when children just need a, a movement break. Um, the teacher will have it worked out with the office staff that if Johnny brings you a note, it's going to be folded in half and it's going to be blank, but he needed to go for a walk. He needed to get it out of his system. Same thing with the librarian or the music teacher or the art teacher. If Johnny Brink comes to you with a carton full of stuff, it's because he's getting that gross motor break. And see, that way he doesn't stand out to his peers and it's just a part of his day. All right, wonderful. Well, we have our last question. And this is one that um, we hear again from parents. They've requested an IEP, they've requested a 504, and the school has said, well, instead of do, doing that, we want to do something a little more informal. And what happens, uh, what should a parent do if the school suggests that the school, the parent, the student come up with a parent-student-teacher agreement, something that is not formalized? What should a parent do in that regard? It's going to make you feel uncomfortable, but I would reject it. And on the sole purpose of because there are no procedural safeguards attached to it. And I've had, I've sat at meetings, you know, and where the IEP, I remember exactly where it was, the IEP chairperson said, well, we don't have to get all legal. And I said, we're not trying to get legal. There are no procedural safeguards attached to that plan, which means if a teacher chooses not to do it, you have no recourse. If the child warrants an informal plan, why can't we put it in a 504 plan? Wonderful. I think those are, I think that's the phrase a lot of parents will find empowering. If the child warrants this, why can't we put it into the 504 plan? Mm -hmm. Well, I, this has been very valuable information, very helpful for many of our parents. We've had a lot of parents offering you thanks for your time today. And to our, to our participants, We've had many questions, and we haven't been able to get to all of them today. If we didn't get to your question, please contact us at the National Research Center. And you can reach us either online at help4adhd.org slash NRC for National Research Center, or call us Monday to Friday from 1 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time at 1-800-233-4050. We hope you've enjoyed our webcast.